0: Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan. And our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. One of the premises of this podcast is how the Seminole Wars of the 19th century's dead past continue to resonate, even in our own times. This may be a hard case to make to a Florida population, largely transplanted from elsewhere. For those native to the Sunshine State, living outside of the reservation, the case is a bit easier. But for the Seminole, who trace a heritage in Florida back centuries, if not millennia, the past is not dead, as the great novelist William Faulkner put it. It is not even past. Our guest today explains how Seminole still think about those wars all the time as part of their upbringing. They listen to stories about the wars passed down from generation to generation. Even as they reflect on what happened to them in the past, though, Seminole keep themselves well-prepared for any reoccurrence of it in the future. They are, after all, the unconquered Seminole, the tribe that never signed a peace treaty with the U.S. government ending those Florida wars. They have a reputation to sustain. Not that they long to go back to war with the U.S. government. I'm just saying. Joining us today is Brian Zepeda, a member of the Panther Clan, who calls Naples, Florida as his home. The tribal artist, although raised in a traditional Seminole village on a reservation, credits the importance of learning his trade in art as equally important as the survival skills his multi-generation family instilled in him. Today, Brian offers a glimpse into the Seminole perspective on the wars, on how some of the most popular stories about it, such as the fate of Osceola, differ noticeably from the Seminole understanding, and on how the Seminole maintain their culture today while having fully adapted to 21st century America, Brian Zapata, welcome to the Seminole Wars. It's an honor to be talking to you today, Patrick. Thank you, Brian. How do the Seminole Wars still resonate among the Florida Seminole today?
1: Today, the Florida Seminoles, we still think about it all the time. For like, it was part of my upbringing. We heard stories from the Seminole Wars, and there are things that we do today that are still a reflection of things that happened during the wars. Some of those things I, I can't talk about. But one of those things is that we always pass on that history of here's what's happened to us in the past always be prepared for it in the future because when it comes to human relations there never is a black and white there's always fuzzy gray areas and things that you don't plan for so whatever you can do in your life to make sure that you're prepared for any situation is it and it sounds crazy but I'm going to tell you something about my great-grandfather, Corey Robert Osceola. When I was a kid, he had a pickup truck, and he had an axe behind the seat. And I asked him why he had an axe. He said, my grandpa told me, you always have an axe because you're always going to need it. Whether you're building something or you're protecting yourself or whatever it is, a man should always have a good axe. And it stuck with me and years later i talked to my uncle pete and he's like yeah because we use axes to build the structures we live in and those structures that we live in or the ones that we use and used to make and still make today i guess the chiquis that everybody knows about those structures evolved from the Civil war because we had to build structures that we could easily build and easily abandon in the middle of the night middle of the day if we were attacked because previous to that we lived in more of a log home type structure so we had to evolve into that type. But both of those, we used tools to build them. So those things that my great grandfather passed on to me, like having a good ax, it reflects upon that time of during war as well.
0: How much of an improvement is life now for Seminole over the Seminole Wars era? There are
1: pluses and minuses. Today I'm paying taxes.
0: <laughs> Today I
1: have to buy things with money, where previously I could have just traded for it. But on the other hand, my home has air conditioning. I live in Florida. It's really nice to have that air conditioning. So there are pluses and minuses, just like in anything, whether you're talking periods of history or different geographical locations. Each has their pluses, each has their minuses. And so does time. I know from the stories I've been told about the Civil War time, and for us, I, I don't refer to it as the three Seminole Wars like most history books do. We just refer to at the time when we were at war for almost 40 years with the United States. There was no real breaks for us. We were always on alert. And, you know, that's one thing I know I I do not wish that I had today, that I was having to deal with a war 24 hours a day every single day of my life. It's quite nice for me to to not have that burden. But on the other hand, I also know there's a lot of things that we lost from the Civil War, such as parts of our language. There are words that if you don't use them every day, people lose them. And so we've lost part of our language. We hold on to what we have. But I also know that there is some knowledge that was lost because there were people who had that knowledge that died in the war and were unable to pass that knowledge on. So today we still have knowledge. We have stories and history. But I know there are pieces missing here and there. And we do our best to try to, to use what we have.
0: Brian, you mentioned about being in Florida and having air conditioning, but you still own a chickie. Yeah.
1: Yes, I do. I have one in my backyard. Originally, I built it myself. Most recently, I had my cousin Jimmy Wayne hold this, re roof it uh, for me. So, yes, I still have one. I still use it. I use it almost every day, still.
0: How are you using it?
1: But right now I'm using it because I've recently picked up a hobby of refurbishing axes and hatchets and customizing handles, and I'm about to partake in building my first forge. So I'll to talk to you again later about that once I get it up and run it to tell you if it was a success or not. But right now I'm working mostly on the wood part and just refurbishing the metal portions of it. So I do that under there because it's about 20 degrees cooler under the chicky. You know, if it's 100 degrees outside, I'd rather be in 80 degrees. It's still a little warm, but not not 100. So.
0: And using traditional cultural ways of building things.
1: I've always been a fan of hand tools. I use power tools every now and then, but if I can use a hand tool, I prefer that. If it's an axe, an ad, a draw blade, a scorp, whatever it is, if I can use it with my hand. Like I'm making custom axe handles, and I have a shaving horse that was built, so I use the shaving horse. I could use a workbench with clamps and, and vices, but I prefer that shaving horse for some reason. I don't know why, but I use it. It's worked fabulous for me so far. I'm a big fan of hand tools. If I can use a drill without it having an electrical supply, if I do a hand crank drill, I'm okay with that.
0: Does doing this work inside a chickie help you?
1: Not necessarily. For me, I don't know. It's just I can be outside but not be outside at the same time. For me, that, that's more of the, the reason I like doing it, You know, working on things with my hands under a chickie because the sides are open, so I have that breeze. I can see the elements that Mother Nature has provided for us, it, and it's just really nice for me. Because my childhood, I spent so much time in my great-grandparents' village. It was all outside. We had all open-sided chickies, and it was just great. Kind of reminder of my childhood at the same time.
0: Now you mentioned survival skills. What other type of survival skills can you share with us that you learned growing up?
1: I make a lot of things out of leather, leggings, moccasins, that sort of thing. I can hand-stitch shirts and clothing and that sort of stuff. And I know um, some people tell me I'm crazy for hand stitching clothing, because you know I do have access to a sewing machine. And during this COVID-19 time that we're in, I have stitched masks with the sewing machine because I had to produce a bunch of them at a, in a minimal amount of time for people in my family. So that's what I did. I used the sewing machine simply because it was faster. But my personal preference is to hand stitch. I like using my hands, building things, making things. And that's always been my preference. So in those things that I make that reflect or relate back to Seminole times of the war, building chiquis, I can start a fire without matches or a lighter. I know how to make things. I can make bows, gigs, arrows. I know how to track animals, all those sort of things that I've picked up the skills as a kid growing up. I still use them
0: today. Brian, you mentioned some stories that have been passed down about the Seminole Wars, and some of them are kept private within the tribe, which can you share with our audience?
1: I get asked, a bit about Osceola. I mean I get asked about them at, at most of the public appearances I do, whether it's doing a lecture or speaking engagement or whether it's doing a living history event or whatever it may be, a battle reenactment. Somebody always asks me about Osceola and a lot of times they're not happy with what I tell them. My knowledge of Osceola goes back to previous to to what people think of Osceola because people think of him during the wars and you hear stories about him stabbing a treaty and, and all those sort of things but my knowledge of Osceola goes back to his parents and before his birth because that that's kind of how our history works what happened to him during his childhood even as a baby what happened to him was pretty traumatic and so I can tell the personal story of him to tribal members but the public story I can share because so many people have written books about him, and stories are being told. I mean, you could go to St. Augustine today, and they'll tell you about him in. The Castillo de San Marcos. So I don't mind telling that portion of his history, but it's different than what most people know about him, like being non-tribal. Because for me, being tribal, the story that was told to me and my understanding of it is that he was caught under the flag of truce. He was held in St. Augustine. And the story that everybody knows is that they moved him from there up to Fort Moultrie. He was moved up there and then that's where he died. And then his head was removed and the doctor took it. to Dr. Wheaton and all that sort of thing. But from our perspective, our story is different, being that he was not caught by himself. There were others that were caught with him. They were held in the fort as well. We got all of them out, minus him and his immediate family. And the people go, why would they leave him? And for us, this goes back to stories that people know about him, where he was pretty flamboyant in his actions and work. And for us, being seminal, when you get an order from above, especially during wartime, you have to follow that order. And many times he chose not to follow those orders and do what he thought was right. I always hear about him being referred to as Chief Osceola, but in my tribe, that's not how we see him. He was not a chief. He was a highly ranking warrior, for sure, but he would have been more somewhere along the lines of a sergeant, not a general or a chief. Those people being like Mikanofi and Billy Boleg and Abiyaka, those people were the top leaders, not Osceola. So we got the rest of his people out of the Castillo de San Marcos, but not him. We left him. Now, some of those who were left inside with him made it out after his death. And the story they told us was that he was shot by someone in the fort. And so the doctor had to remove his head so that when people asked, they could not see his head with that hole in it because they knew that he would be killed. He was caught under a flag of truth and you kill him as an unarmed prisoner. That would be a black eye in the United States. So that doctor's idea was to move him to Fort Moultrie. He would tell people he removed his head there after he passed away from illness. And so the stories for us are different, but they intertwine at the same time. That's the sort of things that we have in our tribe. Our history and the history you see in books, they're similar. And some things are exactly the same, but sometimes things are completely different.
0: How about on Battles?
1: in our tribe, we know that we sort of look upon ourselves as the originators of guerrilla warfare and those type of tactics, you know, setting up traps for people to walk in and those sort of things. And so when it comes to military tactics, we had our own version of it that was very different. It being that people would say, okay, we're going to meet on this field. You're going to be on that side. We'll be on this side. And they would line up in line. They would exchange fire, that sort of thing. Where we were like, nope, we're going to track you through the swamp. We know where you're going to get bogged down in the soft soil and the water, and the alligators are going to help us, the water moccasins are going to help us, the mosquitoes are going to help us. You'll be most vulnerable at this point. We're going to attack you right there, and we're not going to tell you about it. And that's pretty much how we looked at the war most of the time. We'd get as many shots as we could off in in an engagement, and then we'd move on. The other thing I'll tell you is that I have a friend, David Mott, he asked me one time, he goes, you know, he goes, I've read about the U.S. leaders being puzzled when they would sit down with the Seminoles and they were puzzled at the end because at the end the Seminoles would just get up and leave. So they would have no idea whether we were in agreement or we were mad or what. And I said, well, that's because we don't have a word for goodbye. I go, when business is completed, it's completed. That's it. You part ways. There's no word for goodbye because the only time you would really say goodbye is to someone who has passed on, who has perished or died. And we don't talk to dead people. So we would have no reason to do that. And in our culture at that time, We didn't shake hands. That was not from us. That from the rest of the European society that came across the ocean and came to the United States. But over here in North America, we didn't shake hands. That wasn't part of our repertoire in political etiquette. It was, we spoke what we needed to say. You say what you need to say. We have an agreement. Okay, business is concluded. We'll see you next time. That's it. And he's like, okay, now that makes sense to me.
0: About the Dade battle, in the Seminole mind, they did what they had to do. But because the army then set up a breastworks to stay, Seminole thought, oh, they're not done? Okay. And then they re-engaged, whereas had the army left, that might have been the end of it. Some wounded, some killed, but not in a total annihilation. How does that jive with how you understand it?
1: Things The military did seem odd to us, and one of those things was that they like to chop down a lot of trees, a lot of trees. When they would build a fort, they would clear all the land and use all the timber and build the fort and leave an empty parameter around them. So you could always see when the soldiers were on duty and controlling the perimeters. So all you'd have to do is, okay, we know, done up, they're out there. Okay, midday, they're not there. Evening, okay, they're doing a check again at this time. So you learn their routine. And I'm saying this because during the day battle, we all know they chopped down some trees and made a little brushwork and hid inside of it. And to us, it was like, okay, it's not fully enclosed. We just have to flank around the other side. It's like, okay, they, they just, they gave us a nice backdrop. Is basically what they did. And then that's how we looked at it, and we thought, you know, okay, they had a chance to go and to leave and flee, and they chose to stay, okay, it's going to continue then. And so as long as they continue to exchange fire with us, we're going to exchange fire right back to them.
0: It shows different cultural interpretations. Oh, yeah. Why were there so many incidents on the Fort King Road?
1: My thought is this, that I read about different cultures and how they perceive war and how they attack it. I know a lot of Rome's enemies, they did the exact same thing because the Romans loved to build roads. But there's still Roman roads that they built that are still being used today. When you wanted to find your enemy, you know he put this road in, he's coming back to use it. You just have to wait there. So it wasn't that difficult.
0: On the flip side, it was very difficult for the soldiers to find the Seminole because the Seminole didn't take the Fort King Road to go over there wherever they wanted to go during the conflict.
1: Yeah, we had a lot of knowledge about the geography of Florida. and I'll tell you a little story. I was asked to be a guest speaker at an event at a university, and a professor came up to me after my talk, and he said, yeah, he goes, Seminoles, you guys have only been around for about 250 years, I guess. I said, well, what makes you say that? He goes, well, you don't hear about Seminoles before that. I said, well, you do. You just don't know it was us. You refer to us as other natives. I said, because the reality is we've been coming to Florida for thousands and thousands of years. We have stories about all the different ancient natives that were here in Florida. We used to come down here. It was kind of our winter home to come down into Florida. So we knew all of Florida. That's how we knew all of the medicinal plants and their usages and, and all that sort of stuff. I said, so we've been around. I said, we've just only been coined as Seminole since about 1760. When you see it on a Spanish document, they refer to the natives in Florida as Seminole. I said, but we've been around longer than that. You just refer to us by different names, whether it was Creeks or in some other form. But today's Seminoles, if you're referring to us as the Seminoles you know as today, yes, I will say the term Seminole has only been around for that long, since about 1760. And he looked at me with a puzzled look, and he said, well, I'll have to get back to you on that.
0: In contrast, the army that came down here was not from Florida. It was a United States army of people from all the states in existence at the time, as well as many immigrants from Europe. And these folks had no idea what was in Florida. It was only because of the Second Seminole War, as the army dubbed it, that they started doing cartography and building roads and then exploring a little bit more to find out where things were. So there's a great contrast. And the Seminole War had a great advantage in that regard.
1: When you read the military reports and and loss of life a lot of it was due to dysentery and things that we had nothing to do with (laughs) it had to do with mother nature giving them a rough time you know
0: brian what have you learned in your study about the Seminole wars as opposed to what you learned from oral histories from family members and others how is it different how does your study actually reinforce what you learned
1: one thing that stands out to me in in most is that Everybody else looks at it as the three Seminole Wars, first, second, third, finally wrapping up 1858. And for us, again, it was just one long war, and we don't look at it as we've ever ended the war. We're still on alert. The traditional Seminoles, I would say, we still look at it as, you know what, we never really did sign a peace treaty. And people always tell me, you know, okay, we see all these peace treaties, they were signed by the Seminoles, and I will say yes. But they were signed by people who did not have the authority to do so. I said, it's like me walking up to somebody in a grocery store and saying, today, you're surrendering the United States and sign this document and having them sign it. It's signed by a U.S. citizen. Does that really count?
0: What makes you most proud about the Seminole resistance and the long war?
1: The fact that there are still Seminoles in Florida. Years ago, I was interviewed by the History Channel for a documentary called Conquerors. They interviewed me about the segment concerning Andrew Jackson. The person who interviewed me said, how does it feel that you guys were conquered by Andrew Jackson? And I said, we weren't. He said, But you were and I said, If we were, I would not be here today. I would not be here in Florida giving an interview from our land and then he paused and he said, Cut <laughs> And I said, Why are you cutting? He's like, Well, I gotta rethink my question now and I said, Oh, okay. I mean, those perceptions are still out there. I have a different point of view because I read the history books. I read a lot of the things. And I know that there are certain engagements and battles that, that people go, oh, my gosh, why did this happen? And they say, well, we wanted this land for this farm or we wanted this land for that. For everybody's land, but we were here. We were already using it. We didn't own it, but we were already making use of it. For, so for you to come along and try to take it away from us, it, it made no sense. And for us, it was part of our survival, growing food and being able to eat part of living and you're trying to end our life so of course we're going to fight because religiously speaking for Seminoles it's against our religion to kill people but when we're faced with extinction we don't like that
0: what brings you the most regret about the Seminole Wars
1: that there truly wasn't a closure to it because for me reading history books I know that for the United States within itself there was already turmoil starting and it wasn't but shortly after what people consider the end of the third Seminole War that you have the Civil War starting to really gain momentum to actually come into fruition of having that civil war, and it did. For us, it was like, well, we have a different battle we got to fight, so we're going to leave you alone. Nobody bothered to tell us that they were completely done.
0: How did you get involved and invited to do the Dade battle reenactment? And how rewarding or important or valuable have you found doing that?
1: The way I got involved with the date battle was with Billy Cypress. At the time, he was my boss at the Atoptiki Museum, and he said, hey, they're looking for somebody to do the narration for the battle from the seminal side. He goes, I've been doing it for a while. He goes, I need to, to let somebody else have an opportunity. To, so I, he goes, I told him I was going to ask you. him, him He and uh, Frank Blomert were both interested in having somebody else narrate the battle, pass that opportunity down to somebody. So I thought about it, and I said, yes, I'd be very interested in doing it. I believe I did it for two years. I had a good time at it, but what I found is I like doing the battle portion better than I like doing the narration. After two years, I believe they had, I think it was Moses Jumper Jr. do it, also known as Big Shot, and I believe he did it for a few years. Most recently, my brother Pedro has done it.
0: I've heard that the narrator portrays alligator or jumper, but I've also heard that it's a generic seminal. What do you say?
1: Um, I've heard both as well. I think it's just nice, because most battles you don't have a narration at all. Somebody comes and says something before the battle, and then somebody says something after the battle, but nobody tells you during the battle, this is why this is happening, this is what they were thinking, all that sort of stuff. And the day battle gives a different perspective on it by giving you two sides to it not just one, but two sides to it. And I think that's great.
0: For lack of actual Seminole, we have whites who play Seminole. How do you feel about that?
1: I'm okay with it as long as they don't try to portray themselves as actual Seminole, which has happened a few times I know of. I know my tribe has taken legal action on that, sending them a legal notice to cease and desist you're not actually Seminole. It all depends on how you look at it. They're people out there who have a lot of knowledge about the wars and what happened and that's great and they are willing to share that history that's also fabulous there was something that was told to me a long time ago and it stuck in my head and people ask me all the time about my religious views and, and that sort of thing and and i tell them i said you know i was
0: born seminal
1: and i would die seminal i said and that's how i look upon it were you
0: born seminal
1: you know and that's how i look at these things
0: so we have people like Steve Kramer and Chris Kimball who really strive for authenticity in the seminal that they portray, but they don't let anyone mistake them for being actual seminal. They
1: make a concerted effort to make sure the public knows they're, they're portraying seminal history and portraying seminal life, but they don't tell the public we are seminal. This is our life. So there's a big
0: difference. How are seminal culture and materials endangered, and what have you done personally to try to prevent that?
1: They're in danger because we pass it on from person to person. We don't really write it down. And like I was telling you before, there's a lot of knowledge that was lost during the Civil Wars because people had knowledge, didn't pass it on, and then they passed on. So that knowledge kind of died. It's the same thing today. Myself, how have I made efforts to preserve it and pass it on? I've made great efforts. I'm the one who started the outreach program at the South Thinking Museum, going to schools, um, churches, civic groups, universities, and speaking about our tribe, our culture, our history. Because a lot of times I'll go to speak about history, I'll say any questions and people pop their hands up and they want to know about the hard rock or the university. And I don't it's not why I'm here. I'm here to talk about our history and culture, not modern times today.
0: Brian, you're also an artist. Who inspired you to get started being an artist? And what was the first item you created?
1: To be honest, I couldn't tell you the first item I created because I've been doing it a long time. <laughs> uh-uh, since I was a kid making stuff. I was always interested in making stuff, seeing how stuff worked. I don't know, taking things apart, seeing how they work. It used to drive my parents crazy, because I know one time they bought me a TV for my room, a little black and white TV when I was young, and I took it apart and I put it back together simply because I wanted to see how it worked. And I've always been like that. So I, I really couldn't tell you the first item I ever made, artistically speaking. I've just always been making stuff, have enjoyed making stuff, no matter what it is. If I can use my two hands and create something, that's great. But, you know, I don't know how all artists look at it, but for me, it's to please my own eye. And, and like, like I have a book that I have all these ideas for, whether it's a painting, a drawing, a beaded bag, whatever the item may be. making bandolier bags the first four bags i made for myself i ended up selling so the fifth bag that i made i was like i'm I'm keeping this one and i was offered a lot of money for it more than i would have asked for it and i still didn't sell it because i wanted to finally keep one for myself but it didn't have anything to do with um oh i don't want to sell this it's just i wanted to have one for myself finally because i had made four bags already that i intended to keep for myself to use for reenactments and i had
0: smithing, chicky building, finger weaving, painting, sewing, and you're a storyteller. And you've integrated seminal culture into all of these. How important is that?
1: Yes, I don't know if it's important or if it's just who I am. It's just a part of me. I don't really, personally, I don't personally look at all of the art that I make and say it has to be seminal because I've customized shoes and I've put Marvel Comics on them. And when I look at it, I was like, okay, that looks pretty cool. And I was pretty proud of making them, but it didn't have anything to do with being seminal. Yeah, a lot of the stuff that I do make has a seminal theme in some way. It's just a part of me, I think. I don't. I don't think it's. Oh, I have to do it. It's just. It's just me.
0: How much of what you do is self-taught, and how much you've learned from other people?
1: A lot of the things I make, it's because I've actually been able to see historical examples, and a lot of times I can look at something and figure out how it's been made I'll just make it other times I'll have to watch somebody do it I can't just look at the item like like I got recently started painting because I started having these visions in my head of paintings and I needed to get them out but I never painted before so I watched some YouTube videos on how to paint and so the first couple of paintings I did I did about four or five impressionists because I just wanted to get a feel of how to fix paints and use the brushes and how they lay on the canvas and how well I can blend them and all that sort of stuff. And then after that I started doing the paintings that were in my head and they came out and I made the first one and my youngest daughter goes, all right, dad, you need to paint. These are great. So I, I painted some more and everybody liked them. And I entered one in the in my tri- tribal fair and I won first place for my painting against some other people who were well-established painters. And I said, okay, I guess I must must be okay at this. So some of the things I would guess it'd be about 50-50 that somebody's taught me. Well, not 50-50, I guess you got to.
0: create things and they have functional use you may also just create works of art how do you decide
1: again this is one of those things i don't think i decide i just know that things pop in my head and i need to get them out and it, i don't really think about is this going to be a utilitarian item that will also be considered art or is this just going to be considered art or what the end use of it is because like I said, with the painting it was just i wanted to paint I know, like, the one painting I gave to my mom, my parents, because I painted a a picture of one of our villages with my great-grandparents in it, and they loved it. And they're like, oh, this is going on the wall. And uh, it was like, I didn't think of the end use, but once I painted it, I said, oh, I think my mom would like this. And And sure enough, she liked it. But then there are other things that I make I've had forever. Like, I still have the first pair of wool leggings that I made. I needed a pair of leggings to, to do a historical reenactment. I didn't have any. I went to a museum. I looked at some. I went home, and I made some. I don't know if my brain works differently than other people, but if I can see it or touch it or see somebody make it, I can do it. And I don't really think about what it's going to be used for. So the leggings are, by a lot of people, they see the beadwork on them. They go, wow, that's a work of art. And I look at them, and they're a pair of leggings. You know, like people look at a pair of pants. are in the band- me of Batman TV series and the Riddler. Do you remember the Riddler from that show? The bag, when I looked at it, I said, this reminds me of the Riddler. So I called the bag the Riddler. You know, was I subconsciously influenced by from the Batman TV series? Maybe, but to me, it was like something popped in my head. I made it, and then when I looked at it, I was like, this looks like the Riddler.
0: <laughs> Where is your art displayed if you haven't sold it to an individual?
1: You can still see my artwork on display at Walt Disney World in Orlando. and the American Residential Pavilion, I think is what it's called. They have a gallery that they turned into a Native American gallery, and I was lucky enough to be selected as one of the artists, so you can see my beadwork on display there. The South Florida History Museum over in Miami has one of my bags on display. My, my artwork on display. Okay,
0: so our listeners say, hey, I want some of that. How can they either contact you or find your art for purchase?
1: They can direct message me through my artist Facebook page, Brian Zapata Florida Seminole Artist. People direct message me all the time through that about doing commission work.
0: How does the art that you do help sustain Seminole culture?
1: For me, it's because I'm one of the few people doing it today. Uh, most people Look at Seminoles and they think patchwork, they hardly ever think applique. They don't think the long coats, they don't think leather or wool leggings, they don't think about the breech cloth, the center seam pucker toe moccasins, they don't think about the silversmithing in the same way, the turban, all that kind of stuff. They think of patchwork, they think of uh, alligator wrestling, they think of Florida State University or the hard rock. So when I look at it, I was like, I'm still trying to do the thing that we were originally known for.
0: You mentioned using some of this as a reenactor. What do you enjoy most about the reenacting?
1: Mostly the people, the other reenactors. I've made some lifelong really good friends out of reenacting. I mean, you mentioned Steve Creamer and Chris Kimball, like Earl at the Berries, Earl and Betty and Jeremy and all of them. They've been lifelong friends as well. Wayne and Marilyn Devereaux and Holcomb. That they've I've known them forever, you know what I mean? Ralph Smith. I mean, I have so many lifelong friends that I've made out of reenacting and and If I call them and I need their help, they've always helped me, and vice versa.
0: What would you want our listeners to take away from our conversation today, about the Seminole War specifically, and about the survival of the Seminole in general?
1: What I would like listeners to take away is that we're all people. All of us are people. Seminoles are people. Everybody else is people. We are all put on this planet to do something, and I don't think it was to hurt each other. I look at the Seminole Wars; it was a bad time in our history. It was a tough time in our history. It made us into, you know, people always call us the unconquered. They think of us as being really tough people. And I look at it as we did what we had to do to live. And I think that's what I would like people to take away from it, is that we were people who were simply trying to survive.
0: Brian Zapeta, thank you so much for joining us today for the Seminole Wars. It's been my pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.SummonAWars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Summon of Wars podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a five hundred one C three nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast twenty twenty, All Rights Reserved. Front Bumper Music The Devil's Garden Roastem provided by kind permission of Reedy Onman. Back bumper music, second Seminole win by Jed Merim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, All Rights Reserved.